Tonight we'll be in Luke chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. If you will turn there with me, please. And when you are there, will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Verse 24 reads, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We start back up tonight in the book of Luke, starting here in chapter 6, where we left off. We have taken a two-week hiatus for um, different reasons, but however, one of them being last week, we decided to stand alongside about 5,000 other churches across the nation, across the world, in light of Bill C-4 that was passed in Canada. If you are unaware or uninformed, or if you weren't here last week, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen to our sermon last week as we preached to teach, to inform people of this bill and the um, real repercussions that um, can trickle and, and the threat it poses to um, the Christian faith. And so it, it was worth, we deemed it was worth taking an entire Sunday off and to stop through the book of Luke in order to address it. And so I, again, encourage you to go back and listen to it. So we are back in the book of Luke um, here in chapter 6. One thing that we do that is unique more to our church, not that every church in the United States does this, not that every church in our denomination does this either, but we do some of like an exegetical, expository preaching. And that the idea behind um, this type of preaching is that we take a book and we dissect it. We want to be as accurate as possible to carefully draw out of every passage, every book, every verse, every word, what the teaching is, the original teaching in the original language. And so that is something that's unique to our church and that we try to do um, well. And so there are many benefits to doing this. Um, one is that we get to preach a full counsel of Scripture. We would say that all of Scripture is, is breathed by God, that all of Scripture is um, given to us and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so there's no part of Scripture that we want to skip over. Um, scripture can be tough to understand. There's some passages that are super theological deep and have a lot of depth to them that need a lot to unravel and dissect. There's also passages, passages that are unpopular, uncommon, that tend to offend people, as such as a passage tonight. And so we, um, as a church, have committed to preach a full council, and that's why we will stay in the book of Luke and preach every verse until we finish the entire book of Luke in three years, if you will. <laughs> so, buckle in, um, but nonetheless, we're excited. We believe that God's Word has revealed um, the way to um, life, life to the fullest, the abundant life that Christ promises to His followers, and gives us the manual to life, if you will, how we are to live, what we are to do. But much more than that, it also reveals the nature and the character of the God that we worship. Um, we come here tonight not because necessarily we enjoy community or because Although we do enjoy community, we do love one another, and it is a wonderful time to gather. But we have gathered tonight to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And thus, that is why we properly prepare our hearts to come before and to worship Him, to understand Him. And we come to hear the Word proclaimed, because the Word is how God has ordained for Himself to be revealed. Yes, it's in natural, general revelation, if you will. We can see nature. And um, as my buddy Zach was just encouraging me yesterday, as he is a nurse in anatomy, he sees, as he studies the human body, he sees how God is so real. He sees how God is so prevalent. But God has uniquely, through special revelation, is where revealed himself. It's not only is it a benefit for us to know how to live our lives, but it's also for the purpose to get to know this God who desires to be 
intimate with us and has revealed himself in and through it. So thus, we do not want to skip any passage, even a passage such as, such as the woes. Um, it's something that we don't want to skip over and tread lightly on. We live in a day and age where it's common to church shop, if you will. Um, it's very easy to go from one church to another to try to find one that you seem to fit in, that you're comfortable, that is your niche, that might have a certain type of teaching that is, um, puts you in a place that is non-threatening, that um, is, doesn't violate uh, your conscience, if you will. And so a lot of people um, will do this, will search out a church that they find best fits the way that they want to live their lives, that doesn't address the problems, doesn't address the sin that is in their life, um, and so become ignorant to it. Um, and so we don't desire to be that kind of church. Um, our standard as a church is not um, necessarily if you feel comfortable, although that is our greatest desire, and we hope that you stay in fellowship with us and come to Condados afterwards as... It's a great feast, as these guys can attest, but also um, we, our standard is God's truth, that we want to be faithful to the text at all times. doesn't matter if it's tonight from the pulpit or a small group or an accountability group or any time we were gathering meeting as a body and fellowship of believers. We want to be faithful to the standard of God's truth and what he has revealed within his text. There's also a tendency within the Christian world or um, subcultures, if you will, to, to drift towards an extreme. Um, whether it's theological or any other spectrums. Um, we as mankind do not balance well perfectly as our triune, perfect God does, the extremes of what is shown within Scripture. And so what I mean is here is that we're in the woes, but they follow the Beatitudes. We have four verses of the Beatitudes, and we have four verses of the woes. And in our day and age, it's popular, or not, I shouldn't say popular, it's common, perhaps, that there are churches that lean to one extreme, the church is that it's all about God's love. It's all about God's blessings, all about his prosperity, his favor, and that's all they preach about. That's all they talked about. But also, there's churches that all they focus on is hellfire and brimstone. All they talk about is the doom that has to come, the end of the world, and God's wrath, and sinners must repent. And here, Christ doesn't fall to either extreme. He gives a blessings, and he also gives the woes, and how important it is that we need both of them. And so, if some to reflect on, and perhaps maybe even in your own daily devotional as you are reading through Scripture, is it easy for you to stay in the passages that's all about God's love and all about His blessing, His favor upon you, as on us as are His children? There's nothing wrong with that, but if you quickly skim over the aspects about God's justice and His anger and His wrath and His punishment towards sinners, you are slowly painting a God that you find favor with. You're not painting like the full picture of who God is and how he has uh, revealed himself in and through his word. But also even evangelizing. When you are telling people about Christ, is it all hellfire and brimstone? Is God this, certainly he's an um, angry, angry God towards sinners, but he also is love and grace. And we can be so um, fist down or pedal to metal or just so harsh and how we portray God towards an unbeliever that no wonder they don't want to come and worship this God. And so we need both in our lives, in our daily devotions, from the pulpit, and when we are evangelizing and sharing the gospel. We must balance the truth. Christ does, and all throughout his words he does, and we must as well. Another thing to recognize here as we see the blessings and the woes is that there are two groups here. There are two categories. In scripture, there is no such thing as a neutral. There are those who receive the blessings and are found blessed, 
And there are those who receive the woes and that are deemed to be judged and to be warned. And this is consistent with all scripture. There is the light, there's the darkness, there's those who live by the flesh and those who live in the spirit. There are the slaves of righteousness and the, those who are in bondage to sin. So this is nothing new. Um, I think in our day and age and um, the freedom and the things that we have experienced, we can believe that there is a neutral, that someone can be 95% here, but just 5% missing. And thus, like they're in this gray zone, there's this gray area. And I, I would venture to say that the Lord has separated and made it very clear there's two groups, there's the sheep and there's the goats, not to, well, for the purpose of clarity. Because there are those who are in Christ and found in Christ and need to be reminded of truth and should be hear the message of blessed are you. But then there are those who are outside of Christ who need to hear the warnings that Scripture portray. And to know that there's only two categories prevents this gray area where you're trying to discern where, where, where are they out on the spectrum, what do they need to hear. And you falsely give false assurance to someone who actually isn't a believer, or you encourage someone who's not a believer, or you... Um, I guess the opposite end would be that you, uh, you put fear in the heart of a believer um, and you make them fear hell when actually they should have great assurance of their faith. And so in the same way, um, there's no neutrals and the blessings and the woes um, portray that, I believe. Consistent with scripture and it is very helpful for us. One thing to recognize though is that the woes is towards the unbelievers. This message is towards unbelievers, not towards the believers. All the woes are. Um, that is at least what every commentary I read told me until I wrote an entire sermon believing it was for believers. And then I read a commentary which quickly corrected me in that. Now, I'm thankful. But that's helpful to understand because with the first woe, it says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The condemnation, the warning, the judgment that is upon these people is not because they are rich. You can be rich and be a Christian. You can be rich and be a believer. We see examples of that all throughout Scripture. You see that Abraham was a man of wealth. Job is one that many of us probably think of. Joseph of uh, Arimathea in the New Testament, the one who Christ, uh, Christ's body is laid in his tomb. And so wealthy people are, can be believers. However, the woe here that is being um, condemned, the woe here that is being shared, is a woe to you who give up your entire life for the pursuit of wealth. Or even those who have received the wealth but have given up and use their entire life for the purpose of gaining that. Essentially, it would be wealth without God. And woes here are to express danger or to give warning. In the same way, if you're driving down the road and there's a um, deer crossing sign, it's saying in the next five miles, like, be prepared. Because like, there's a lot of deer. It's giving you warning that up ahead is this potential threat. And so the woes here is how Christ is to communicate that with unbelievers, saying that woe to you who are living this certain kind of lifestyle, what are you who are in pursuit of this? For there is real and serious danger up ahead. Um, uh, one, but one thing that's unique about woes is they're only as strong as who they are coming from or the source of the object of it. If, um, an example I thought of is if your neighbor comes to you tonight and says, um, be ready, World War III is going to start tomorrow. You probably would just you wouldn't even get a second thought. But if the President of the United States went out tonight and said there's going to be World War III tomorrow, then that would be a very serious warning. They're both warnings. However, the difference is who it's coming from. The President of the United States not only has potentially the wisdom or the, the knowledge that World War III could be starting, 
but he also has the power to start it. Where your neighbor, it's like, how, how the heck would you know that World War III is going to start tomorrow? And it's like, even if you wanted World War III to start tomorrow, you couldn't bring it about. There's like, you don't have whatever, nuclear codes, if you will. So the source of warning is crucial here. And the source that is coming from here in this, in this passage is Jesus Christ, the, the God-man, the embodiment of truth, the Logos. And so we should, as believers, take very seriously the warnings that he is giving towards unbelievers. Because not only does he have the knowledge to know that this is real, but he even has the power to bring it about. And so it's speaking into Christ and his warning. So when God the Creator speaks, we must listen. And so then, what are the woes? So verse 24, But woe to you rich, for you have received your consolation. Again, this is addressed to unbelievers. Um, This is not saying that being rich is one for one that you're going to hell. Um, I just want to drive that home, I suppose. But again, what is being warned of is the pursuit of and the gain of earthly riches. And it makes it their greatest treasure. Um, And this is nothing new in all of Scripture. We see this in Luke 16 later on when we get there in two and a half years. Um, We'll see that there is Lazarus and the rich man, and they are having a conversation after life. Um, We see this in James 5, that uh, the warning is to you who are rich, like you should weep and howl for the uh, coming troubles that will come upon you. See this in Matthew 6, that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot love God and love money. First Timothy 6.10 talks about this, how the love of money is a root of all evil or breeds a lot of evil. Um, Matthew 19 is the passage that we probably all well know well of that um, is harder for a man to get into he- a rich man to get into heaven than, than a camel to pass through the eye of the needle. So we see this throughout all scripture. There's nothing new to necessarily... Christ and his teaching, that this is a consistent thing that is being taught in all of Scripture. And the idea here is for, um, for you have received your consolation, is that they have been given, those who are in pursuit of this have been given a receipt that says paid in full. That if you desire to pursue riches, then riches is all that you will gain. Riches is all that you will have. That after this life, no longer will, be, will God owe you anything in the next life, as if he owed him anything from the beginning. Um, so it's like if you sell your soul to this, then this will be your master. This will be the only thing that you have. Um, or a way a commentary, commenter said it um, was that like days of the good things are numbered. That all that they are in pursuit of will only be in this life. Where we know for us as Christians... The best is yet to come. And yes, that could potentially mean in this life that our days will get better and become more joyful and more walking in the Spirit. But it certainly means that in the next life that we will experience eternal joy and satisfaction and peace. That's not a word. (laughs) Uh, Peace with God. And so our best days are ahead of us. Um, And so if you want to live for riches, then riches will be yours. And what I believe is happening here, potentially, is that Christ is addressing a misconception, both in that day, but also a day that, in our day as well. And this misconception is that riches equals God's favor. That, that riches is a direct res- response from God's favor. And that's not completely false in the sense that we worship a sovereign God who no money changes hands or enter bank's account without God saying so. Like it just says the, um, no raindrop falls or gusts of wind moves without our sovereign God moving it. However, it does not mean it's a direct favor from God. 
But every other religion in the world would say yes to this. Every other religion, which is founded in workspace, would say, based on who you are, based on what you have done, based on the good person that you are, then God must reward you. And what greater way to reward him? Or reward a person who has been so good and so righteous than to give them money, to give them power, to give them influence. The things that in the world, the world envies, the things that the world is in pursuit of, the things that the world desires. And so this is not the economy of scripture. This is not in the biblical worldview how things work. In fact, if you read some places in Isaiah or Proverbs, wealth could actually be a sign of God's curse to a man. That says, if you are in pursuit of this, I will give it to you, and you will see how empty and insatiable it is. And then you will continue to be empty the rest of your life. Because like, I have given you the desire of your heart, and now you have to sit with and realize how empty it is, and all the while miss God and who he is. So it's addressing this misconception, and this is nothing necessarily new. As we know, there are some of um, the richest people in the world who are the most discontent, who are the most unhappy. They have everything money can buy, and yet they are left unsatisfied. They are left empty. In fact, one thing that um, money will um, never be able to buy is a right standing before God. In fact, the only thing that could purchase that was the blood of Jesus Christ. His obedience to go to the cross, to die in a place that um, he did not deserve, that he did not belong but yet willfully did in order to purchase us, purchase us here tonight who are redeemed, who have confessed faith in him, who will come up and partake in, the, um, in communion and remembrance of him. That is, um, yeah, Christ's precious blood, um, something that money could never buy, the right standing. Um, so that if money can't satisfy the heart of man, if money isn't enough, then what about Verse 25, and desires and um, other passions of the world. So it says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 400 years before Christ walked the earth, there was a um, philosophical, ideological view that came about that was called hedonism. And hedonism is still very much alive and well today, although it probably takes different names. But essentially, what it boils down to is the understanding that if something is um, pleasurable, if something makes you feel good, if something is enjoyable, then it must be inherently good. And if it is painful, if it hurts you, if it makes you uncomfortable, then it must be inherently bad. And so a lot of uh, philosophers in um, their early in, in history, but even today, like a lot of us live that way. A lot of people, friends, family we might know live that way, that they only do things that are enjoyable to them, that they find good, that they find satisfying. And anything that makes them uncomfortable or um, puts them in danger or um, threatens, we'll say their peace of mind, they deem as bad and they stray away and they run away from. Um, scripture is consistent in that it teaches that we can be filled with many things. There are many things that we can negatively be filled with. And so we can be filled with food. Um, we can stuff ourselves full and to the point where we become gluttons. And Christ, uh, Scripture warns us against gluttony. Um, we can be filled with wine and become drunkards. We can be filled with knowledge and wisdom, become puffed up in ourselves. We can be filled with um, lust and burn with passion uncontrollably. It just overflows in us. But the one thing that Scripture does teach that we can be filled, of, filled with that is good and pleasing before the Lord is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. 
And so the world tempts us. It throws so many things at us and tells us, come and taste and see and experience what we have to offer and be filled up. Like, drink your cup full, uh, eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Um, And the only thing that can truly not just fill us up, the only thing that can truly leave us satisfied, the only thing that can truly um, give us all that we were made to do, but also that we are longing for is God and His Spirit. Um, Proverbs 5, if you turn there real quick with me, captures well this, um, this difference, the allure of the world and all that it has to offer, and just the wickedness and sinfulness that it brings. <coughs> I'm just going to read 1 to 6. It says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep the discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For lips of forbidden women drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does, she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And so you see that there is this allure. It describes that um, is like honey, its speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, it leads to Sheol, it leads to death, it leads to no life. In the same way, um, the things of the world, um, we are not above being tempted, nor was our Lord and Savior, and so the, the world has a certain allure to it that draws us in, and it says, come and taste and see, experience all that we have to give, fill your cup up, you know, whatever it is, whatever the world is throwing at you and see and experience temporary satisfaction experience temporary peace that end day it will grow empty it will grow dim it will um be nothing essentially and but what the world does is it entrances people and says like oh like you've just reached the surface like you're just scratching the surface it's like you found momentary satisfaction like keep searching Keep going. Keep, it's a path after all. It's not, the world doesn't say you just reach a place and then you're there. It's a path to destruction. It's a path without life. And so it's a path that the world continues to draw people and allure people and to keep going down deeper and deeper until there is no sight of God, until God is an afterthought and has no reverence in their minds. And the language here um, in referring to this, to this path, and um, what you are full now for you shall be hungry. The hungry is an eternal hunger. Um, it's this idea of like a burning thirst that can never be quenched, an idea of a ravaging hunger that will never be alleviated. And the language is also the same as the, um, as the blessings. And so if you look with me in verse 20, it says, He lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so there is a current state. It says, like, yours is the kingdom of God now for those who are found in Christ. But then when we get to verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers to the prophets. So you see this both now and later. See this, yours is the kingdom of God now, but later in that day you'll also rejoice, you will receive more. And the same is for the woes. There is a warning that not only is this path of life now going to leave you empty and unsatisfied, but also it's leading you to a place of destruction where then for sure 
there'll be no longer will there be time to repent, no longer will there be time to turn back. But it's leading to eternal damnation in hell. And so the both as sinners, people who are not walking with the Lord, they are walking, yes, towards hell, but they're also walking in a way now that will leave them unsatisfied, that will leave them um, broken. And so although this, uh, so although this is a um, message to unbelievers, it's a good, faithful reminder to ourselves as well. Um, we are called as Christians not to be of the, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. However, most of us, you know, we're, we work in secular job places, or we have roommates or families who are not walking with the Lord. And it's very easy for the things of the world and the influences of the world and those who we are surrounded by, and as they are running after the things of the world, to also in ourselves, in our, in our pursuits, in our desire to be satisfied, to follow suit, to pursue things of success or power or wealth, or to pursue gluttony or, or drink our fill. Um, like we're not above that as Christians. We're not, we can easily be tempted and led astray. And so it's worth evaluating our own self and what aspects, what realms, what spheres of our life have we let the world spoken into and inform and somehow try to rob us of our discontentment, try somehow lead us down the path that will leave us unsatisfied. Not that our destination changes and that we are blood-bought children and there's assurance of faith and that one day we will go to heaven, but we can be led astray in the sense that we pursue something that is not honoring and pleasing to the Lord for a season or a momentary um, time. And that's also why we stress the, um, the meditation before communion and that we reflect and we search our hearts for any unrepentant sin because we desire to confess and to be, walk rightly before the Lord in all of his statutes and all of his ways. And so thus we should constantly be searching ourselves. We should constantly be evaluating ourselves in what um, realms, realms or spheres or ways that the world may try to invade or intrude in um, who we are in our pursuit of the Lord. So only God can satisfy us. And as believers, we not only experience that, but we must witness. And by not indulging the pursuits and passions of the world, just as being rich is not one for one that you're going to hell, it's not wrong to enjoy a great, wonderful meal um, from St. Joseph, or enjoy a drink from Hotel Tango. It's, but we are to exemplify, though, what it looks like to not be filled with the things of the world and all the world has to offer, but to be filled by the Spirit of God and God alone. And so this comes um, kind of a little bit full circle now, in a sense, it's why um, we preach the woes. And yes, we preach the woes, and um, I hope and pray that each and every one of you is a believer and that the, I don't need to warn you guys of impending doom, but rather one day, Hopefully one day soon I will be able to rejoice with you in heaven. And, and just as Caleb read in the um, meditation that day when all our tears will be wiped away and death will be no, no more. Um, but also, so I, I hope I don't have to warn necessarily anyone, but also the woes I think are a wonderful, wonderful, um, gives us a picture into the nature and the character of who our God is. And so the question I want to ask is, um, what do the reveals show us about the character of our God? And so to understand, or um, I guess to explain more, the, you ask the question, it's like, why warn someone? What, what is the nature of warning? What is the purpose of warning? And it's like, do you just warn anyone? Do you just warn everyone? And who warns someone and why? And so... I, I want to propose that the woes are showing us the love and care that God has towards his creation. 
specifically towards his imago Deo, that he takes it upon himself that he needs to warn even unbelievers, unrepentant sinners, of the impending doom that will one day come, but also of the irsatiable way they are living their lives. Um, and so, yeah, so it's this, this warning, is this care. Um, I see this in, it talks about in Second Peter, that God is patient, that, um, that none, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, and that's warning people. Um, and I, I want to clarify when I'm talking about like God's love for his creation, God's love for the Imago Dei. I'm not talking about necessarily his hesed love. is a Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament to explain his steadfast love, his covenantal love with his people, with his children. Um, that, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about his love and care. But I'm talking about the Imago Dei in the sense that every human being is made in the image of God. And God has a special love and care for them. So much so that he goes... I don't say out of his way. He, he makes it his prerogative, not only here, but other places in Scripture, to warn the sinner of the, the way they are living their lives and what is around the corner if they continue down this way. And so we see that it is out of Christ's love to warn people, to draw them to repentance, to turn from their lifestyle, and to walk um, in the ways of God. And it's important to realize he comes this time warning However, the next time Christ returns, there will be no more warning. There'll be no more time to tell people to turn away. But the next time he comes, there will be judgment. There's, there's no grace period. There's no um, way to I don't know, get a mulligan. Um, that when Christ comes again, there will be judgment, and judgment will happen. And the time of warning is now. And that we, as believers, have now been entrusted with the gospel. And just as I said, you can't, you can't, we don't want to fall to one extreme. We can't just, the gospel is just, it is good news, but it's good news because there's bad news. Um, Paul Washer usually says, like, the scariest thing about the Bible is that God is holy, and we aren't. That is the scariest thing. And so the good news is that for those who repent of their sins and put their faith and hope in Christ, they will be forgiven. How the bad news is, those who don't will receive hell such as we were, um, as we heard last week. So were we as unrepentant sinners one time. And the Lord graciously and kindly saved us from our way of sin and has brought us now into a wonderful time of fellowship and communing with him, the triune God. And so there will be no warning the next time Christ comes. He will come like a thief in the night, uh, Scripture says. And so thus the time for warning is both when Christ came, but even now. Now we have been given that message to share, to share and encourage um, and uplift believers who are walking in the Lord, but also to warn those who aren't, who have uh, gone astray, uh, all of us like sheep. And so my question in closing and, um, and for reflection is, what is your motivation to warn people? Or another question I could ask is, what is your lack of motivation to warn people? Um, if we do not believe that there is a real consequence, there is a real destination such as heaven or hell, and that could be one reason, as we don't address, you know, we don't feel the need to warn people, um, because if we all go to the same place. Um, but then what is your motivation to warn people? And I know for myself in writing the sermons, man, like I, what a lack of love I have for people who aren't in this group, if you will. People who are outside of the church. How I desperately need the Lord to soften my heart 
and to view every image bearer, despite who they are, despite what they have done to me, despite where they are now, you know, from to nations, to my backyard, to my family. Um, that we have now been entrusted with this gospel, with this good news, and that we are to um, proclaim it. And so let's proclaim and give the message, the truth, that not only will uh, satisfy us in this life, and that the life, the abundant life, life to the fullest is, is the best objective way to live your life according to God's word now. Um, and let's, not, let's give unbelievers and those who are found outside of Christ that message now instead of letting them continue to drift into the world and live for the carelessness and the empty things that the world provides. But also, let's proclaim the message that saves sinners um, from the wrath of God. That one day, then we, one day soon, hopefully, um, we can rejoice in heaven. And that is the greatest news. That is the gospel. That is what we proclaim, even in the warnings. And our motivation is to make the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, known and to lift him up as he has ascended, as he has glorified, as he resurrected the grave. Um, that is the message that we proclaim. And so we should go out and we should warn people to turn and to repent of their sins and to come to know um, the God that we all love and cherish. So, if you would pray with me, please. Father, we thank you, Lord, um, that salvation belongs not to ourselves, but to you, God. Um, Lord, there is nothing we can do to turn a soul to you, God. Um, we have no power. We have no wisdom. We have no strength or might to do so, God. But it's just solely by your grace and your grace alone, not by works, so no one may boast, God. Um, Lord, I, I, I just pray you put on our hearts, Lord, the people that we are in close proximity to, from family to coworkers to roommates, God. People who I pray we love and care about God. And Lord, will we make it our initiative to proclaim the good news of the gospel to them, God? To save them from the emptiness of, of the things of the world, of drunkenness, of, of porn, of just all the things the world entices them in and draws them in deeper, Lord, and leads to the path of destruction, God. I, I pray, Lord, that we would truly view the gospel message for what it is, and we wouldn't be ashamed of it, but view it as the power to save sinners onto you. And God, that we would be entrusted with it and we would steward it well, God, for we know one day we will be judged, God, for what we do or don't say and how we have lived our lives and steward well and exemplified what it looks like to walk um, with you. So we just thank you tonight, God, that we can get to praise you for you have saved us. You have brought us from death to life, God. We just thank you for the good news, Lord, um, that there's no more anxiety, there's no fear, there's no, but Lord, instead there, there's hope, there's great hope, there's great assurance by your faith, and I just pray you'd give us, us that tonight, God, that one day, one day soon, we will be with you, we will see our master, our creator, face to face, Lord, and we will be able to worship you to the end of the age, just crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so until then, Lord, help us do just that tonight, God, would your spirit fall upon us, Lord, and we worship your name. So I'm asking pray all these things. Amen.